0: Today on Changemakers, we're in Cape Town. It's been almost 25 years since apartheid was abolished, but its legacy lingers. Apartheid was about dividing people based on the colour of their skin. In general, most black people were prevented from going where whites were, and whites never went where blacks lived. It meant that when black people travelled into white areas to go to work, they didn't have any of the protections that white citizens had. In fact, black people had to carry a passport with them. And just a note on my language in this episode, I'm using the word black to politically include black African and coloured people. So, how do you truly desegregate a city? In Cape Town, a housing movement called Reclaim the City is using some pretty confrontational tactics to try and make it happen. This is the story about them. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We're supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. In the 1950s, South Africa passed a law called the Group Areas Act. In cities... This law assigned different racial groups to different residential and business areas. In Cape Town, attractive places, like the beach areas and the inner city, were mostly declared white. Black residents were forcibly removed and sent to makeshift townships on the Cape Flats, far away from the centre of town. Nikonikosis Watboy, a resident from Kailicha, the largest black township in Cape Town, and a supporter of Reclaim the City explains.
1: In the inner city, during apartheid, the inner city would be for purely white people. Black, I mean, coloured people were placed um, on, fi- on a 5 to 10 kilometre radius. Black people were placed on the 20 to 25 kilometre radius on the outskirts of this city. Um, and that was informed by the 1954 Group Areas Act which was not allowing for black and coloured people to be staying in one area, that people had to be categorically placed according to the, their races and the pigment of their skin.
0: There were black people that remained in the city, but there weren't very many of them. Some black people were live-in domestic staff in white homes or lived in workers' dormitories close by, and other black communities were just never forcibly removed. There were a few black suburbs that the government was never able to evict thanks to organised protest from the communities living there. The black people that remained in these places found themselves living in poor conditions, but on very well-located land. But for the most part, the Group Areas Act was a stunning success for white supremacy in South Africa. It delivered white control of expensive urban land and all the wealth and opportunity that came from that. By the end of the 1980s, there was mounting pressure against apartheid. Inside South Africa, the African National Congress was growing stronger. Across the globe, sanctions demanded by anti-apartheid activists were slowly choking South Africa's economy, forcing the government's hand. Finally, in 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from Cape Town's Robben Island, having spent 27 years in jail. The fall of apartheid felt big. South Africa became a democracy. Millions voted for the first time. The lives of black people would surely dramatically change. Yet there was a catch. Abolishing apartheid meant abolishing the horrendous legal barriers to equality. But the economic inequality between the races remained real. In some ways, it was the worst time for South Africa to burst onto the world stage with this particular problem. This is the early 1990s. Just before, the Berlin Wall had come down, the communist bloc had quickly crumbled around the globe. Capitalists were doing victory laps around newly opened economies. For the technocrats advising nations how to run these new economies, privatisation, free trade and free flow of capital was in, redistributive policies to ameliorate inequality was out. Democracy might have arrived, but for people like Niconikosa, Then, a kid growing up in a shack in Kailiche, life felt pretty tough, both before apartheid and after it fell.
1: As a young boy, I'm witnessing a lot of injustices in front of my eyes. I've seen someone being stabbed and killed in front of my eyes. There were no toilets, and I remember my father, my grandfather, um, actually built us a toilet because he was avoiding the fact that. Um, we had to use the bush to relieve ourselves, and it was not safe at night to do so. And he built like a pit, latrine kind of toilet. He digged a hole and put like some planks um, um, on top of that, and and built like a um, the, the, the toilet seat. Um, and I remember it was the first um, toilet that was built in in Greenpoint.
0: Nkonekosa says it was hard work whenever it rained.
1: You have to be awake the whole night so that you can identify all the holes in the roof and put the bucket in your, your pots and your dishes so, so as to make sure that the, the floor is not wet um, to catch the water that's dropping from, from the, the roof. So it, 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 townships made me who I am.
0: The ANC government pushed back against the global headwinds. It created one of the biggest housing programs in the world, rapidly turning shacks into permanent buildings. Yet the settlements continued to overflow with people. It wasn't enough. The political context was hard too. The shift to democracy saw many anti-apartheid activists move into Parliament and into the public service. So if all the activists started running the state, who was left to push the state to be better? It was a problem born of total victory for sure, but it was still a genuine problem a new generation of social movement changemakers was needed. One was Zaki Arkmat, founder of the Treatment Action Campaign that fought to drop the price of antiretroviral drugs for people with AIDS. Out of that movement, a wave of new community organisations formed, including the Social Justice Coalition, focusing on Cape Town's informal settlements. Ax Notwala is its general secretary.
2: The mission is creating safe communities but focusing more on work and working class communities, uh, people that mainly live in informal settlements.
0: Which, in turn, led to a focus on basic housing services like sanitation and safety issues.
2: The majority of the focus of our work is in areas that are very far away from the inner city. Um, and these areas that are always forgotten when it comes to, to, to basic um, services and dignified
0: services. This is because settlements are supposed to be temporary housing, a place that people end up in for an emergency for a few months at most. In fact, they're anything but that. Many have existed for decades with long-term residents. Yet because the government thinks of them as temporary, they haven't supplied basic infrastructure, such as proper plumbing. Without that, the community fails to thrive. They end up suffering from high levels of unemployment, health problems and violent crime. That's where the Social Justice Coalition comes in. The most stark issue they have confronted has been around toilets. One quarter of Kyle homes do not have access to a toilet connected to a sewerage system. Going to the toilet in an informal settlement can be the most vulnerable moment of the day. It is frequently where violent crime occurs, and for women... That means rape. It was during the first big sanitation campaign in Kailicha that Axe recruited his school friend Nakonikossa to political activism. Axe had been hassling Nakonikossa for a while to get involved. But Nakonikossa had some personal experiences that made him wary of politics.
1: Axe was pushing me then to be part, to form part of this movement. I was like, fuck that, I'm not getting involved.
0: What changed your mind?
1: I think he had done some background work to make sure that the meeting is actually very political (laughs) when I arrive on my day. I remember sitting in that meeting and listening to people discussing issues around sanitation, water and sanitation. I was like, okay, this seems interesting, but, you know, how are they doing it? What are they doing about this?
0: Nikoni horizons immediately broadened. He went from asking, what is this, to... How can we do this?
1: There's something that you're doing good that's working here. The commission of inquiry that was established in 2011 and saying that they're pushing for the commission of inquiry to investigate um, the, the the relationship between the residents and the police because you go and report someone they get um, when they've committed a crime and they get arrested, the following day they're still they're here. They're walking around and, you know, there was something wrong that needed to be. And I was like, this is interesting. And all of that brought back, like, my childhood memories of all the things I witnessed growing up. The tavern opposite my house, people being stabbed, people being shot at, you know. The people coming to our house to ask um, permission to use our toilet because there were no toilets there. Um, and um, that made me to be, you know, interested to attend the meeting. He never... Invited me to meetings again. I was the one, like, asking when is the next meeting, when is the next, you know, um, political action, all of that. And I I fell in love with the activism. Um, I was like, this is exactly what I want to do.
0: The movement grew. They, Nikoni Kosa and the others, became experts in how to safely get rid of poo. The problems with chemical toilets, the costs of full-flush toilets... They investigated every municipality in the country to find out their contracts for installing toilets. Then they built a GPS mapping system to pinpoint all the toilets in the township so they could be identified when they needed to be repaired. They were literally repairing the most basic experience in thousands and thousands of people's lives. Gavin Silber was the co-coordinator at the Social Justice Coalition at the time And he could see the power of what they were doing.
3: But it became a very uh, uh, powerful campaign, I think, because it spoke very directly to people's daily lived experiences. It was very, um, it became quite a symbolic campaign. Um, The fact that 20 years after apartheid, we were talking about, you know, something as simple as just having a safe, clean toilet to use.
0: But at the same time, seeds of doubt also emerged.
3: The
2: work that we were doing, we started, it was informal settlements, um, focusing on basic services in informal settlements. And then we sort of realised that campaigning or advocating for sanitation services um, doesn't just start and end there. Um, There's a bigger picture here. Um, There's... Spatial segregation, there's um, spatial injustice that we have to start dealing with, um, and the issue of urban land.
0: Urban land. For those not from South Africa, these words might not resonate in the same way. But here in Cape Town, access to land is the symbolic and practical measure of inequality.
1: Land is one of the things that leads into inequality in South Africa. You have a minority um, of South Africans owning about 70% to 80% of the land, and 80% of South Africans owning around about 4% of the land.
0: The debate about land reform has tended to focus on rural land. But most people live in cities. For things to change, someone needed to focus on urban land. The Kualicha activists realised that no amount of improvements in the conditions of townships would change the racial segregation of Cape Town. They knew it was about changing who lived where, but they didn't know what to do about it. Meanwhile, in a completely different part of the city, there was a growing group of women who did have an idea about how this issue could be confronted. One of the leaders was Elizabeth Gabuka.
4: I grew up on an island And uh, I came as a domestic worker uh, to Cape Town, and I started working as a domestic worker. And then I started improving myself, and then I worked for uh, for a cleaning company. I became like a garden designer and a landscaper. And then after that, I went and studied further a little bit. While I'm working, and I became a carer as well. So at the moment, I'm a carer and I'm actually caring for the elderly.
0: Domestic workers, aged care workers, childcare workers. These were the people who made the city run, but were so often unseen by the white system. There were black women and men who had been in Cape Town's inner city throughout apartheid. And when democracy arrived, they'd become more outspoken about their second-class status. Elizabeth was political. She was in the ANC and the South African Domestic Workers' Union. And her number one
4: issue? You guessed it, housing. Working as a domestic worker in Seapoint, we saw how many people got uh, um, evicted on a daily basis. When people aged, they could not anymore be able to live in the area where they've been uh, residing and working as domestic workers and the exploitation had actually expanded to such an extent that when you were married, you could not live with your family, your husband, with your children. And, uh, and, and therefore, people were becoming like losing their jobs, they're losing their husbands, their children started landing up in the streets and become homeless children. And we saw actually, it was not only about evictions anymore, Women were getting raped, they were getting robbed, and when they get to work, it's already late, and by the time they come, they wake up around about four o'clock to come into the city, they had to leave around about sometimes half past five, half past six, by the time they get home, it's eight o'clock, and then they could not care for, take care of their own families. And therefore we had decided that this is the time that we need to unite as women to start this movement together.
0: At the start, these organised domestic workers struggled to build enough support to make their case heard. But they were in luck. A small number of NGOs were also looking at taking on the issue of urban land. Under the mentorship of Zaki Ahmed, an organisation called Nafukawazi started exploring the space. They got some support from their partner organisations, Equal Education, and from AXE's organisation, the Social Justice Coalition. By the end of 2015, Nafukuwazi was an organisation in transition. It had been set up as a research arm of the Social Justice Coalition, but it was becoming an independent campaigning organisation itself. It brought together lawyers, researchers, and organisers all under one umbrella. At the beginning of 2016, the activists learnt that an enormous province-owned building was about to be sold. Called the Tafelberg site, it covered over 1.7 hectares of ground space and could easily fit hundreds of affordable homes. And the land was perfectly located. Smack bang in the middle of Seapoint. White, wealthy, beachside Seapoint. Exactly the kind of place that could do with a little more diversity. It dawned on them that this could be their urban land strategy. If they found blocks of land in the inner city and pushed for them to become affordable housing, they would create more and more pockets of black housing. They could desegregate the inner city, block by block, piece by piece. The opportunity was clear, but the movement wasn't. They needed to find a constituency who would fight for affordable housing. So Nafukawazi went out into the community, Jared Rousseau is their co-director.
3: Questionnaires at the stations and stuff, you know, and try and get people motivated about where they want to live. Like, so how long is your journey home? And, and um, would you ever live in the city? And why can't you? And, 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 and we were sort of scrambling, basically, you know.
0: In the process of generating support, they found
3: their leaders. Someone wrote to us on Facebook, I think, um, and said... Uh, You do know there's a group of domestic workers and carers in Seapoint who've been trying to secure that land. And Danielle at that stage went out and engaged uh, Sheila, Elizabeth and and, and everyone.
0: Elizabeth. When Nafukawazi met the domestic workers, they knew they had found the people who would lead the urban land struggle. When Elizabeth and the domestic workers met Nafukawazi, they knew they had found an organisation that could provide resources and support. It was just in time. By the end of January 2016, the Tafelberg site had been sold. The fight was on. In February, the first meeting of Reclaim the City was held. The first problem
4: was finding a place to meet. That is our, actually our first meeting that we had on the prominent sea point because nobody, not even the... The schools, the churches did not actually wanted to host us. They met on the beach in the heart of rich, white seapoint.
0: A group of workers often rendered invisible, gathered and sang and planned, having been pushed into the most visible of places. From the very outset, Elizabeth and her allies were forced into occupying public space while they made a plan to transform it it wouldn't be the only time that this skill would be necessary. From the outset, Reclaim the City was able to use a sophisticated set of powers as it harnessed the skills of its support organisation, Nfukawazi.
4: And then we actually started building Reclaim the City from these four mothers. And this is when they could assist us with issues like giving us like training skills, uplifting us with things that we actually weren't aware how to deal with. And uh, also assisting us with lawyers, which we could not afford to have lawyers because the money that we were earning was not enough that we could take care. Lawyers were
0: critical. In South Africa, there's a history of movement lawyering dating back to the early days of the anti-apartheid struggle. The 1994 constitution was itself a radical document creating lots of new rights, including the right to housing. The Constitution has generated plenty of experimental work, where activists and lawyers have tried to use the law as an arm of social movement power. The Tafelberg site would be a great testing ground at a time when the whole nation was discussing the role of land in transforming the country. In order to stop the transfer of Tafelberg, they had to find a legal loophole. So Mendisa Shandu, Nafukuwazi's co-director and head of law, worked on the case. So that's what the case was able to practically do, was to stop the the, the transfer of the land because we got that interdict in place. It wasn't a win, but it put the transfer of land on hold for the moment. Crucially, it gave the movement time to organise. Over the following months, the movement's organising capacity was in full flight. There were protests, the collection of submissions and letters, a night vigil even a danceathon in support of the Affordable Housing Project. At the same time, the movement's researchers developed a feasibility study to demonstrate how the site could contain over 270 affordable dwellings if it were social housing. Meanwhile, the legal case required the province to engage in formal consultation with the community. The following summer, the street battle, legal battle and research battle continued. They contacted everyone they could think of, businesses, churches, mosques, even academics. By the end, they'd organised 5,000 submissions. Even so, the activists had a deepening sense that they were not going to win. When they presented the submissions to the provincial premier, she ignored them. And a deadline loomed. In March, the provincial cabinet were going to decide the fate of Tafelberg. Sensing hostility, Reclaim the City did what it had traditionally done, They picketed the meeting, setting up a camp outside the Cabinet offices and sleeping there. 48 hours later, the Premier announced the sale would go ahead. They were devastated. But what could they do? Usually this is where our story ends. Protests fail, submissions continue, social movements go back to the drawing board. Not here. The truth was that the provincial government had been leaking like a sieve and the activists knew that they would probably lose this battle but they also had learned something about what it takes to reclaim a city that just lobbying and asking wasn't enough they needed to have a more visible claim over the places that needed to be changed they knew that place is politics that most of the townships began as occupations reclaim the city identified a nursing home in seapoint and a hospital in woodstock that could potentially be social housing in fact Months before the disappointing decision, over a beer in inner-city Cape Town, a brainstorm had already begun about what it would take to occupy the spaces that could be social housing. It was the beginning of detailed planning. It involved lots of meetings, but also a lot of on-site surveillance. As one person who can't go on tape described it, they were like the FBI doing overnight reconnaissance. Initially, the plan was modest. Get in, occupy, show that these spaces should be spaces for the people, wait to be kicked out. So the day after the province declared that they would sell Tafelberg, again, reclaim the city was ready to go. Activists, pretending to be officials from an animal welfare organisation, entered the buildings and started an occupation. They were waiting to be
4: kicked out. But they weren't. Ellen Zeller is the Premier and she was told there's an occupation that's been taking place. And she said, no, leave them. They're going to get tired. And up until today, we had never got tired. They stayed.
0: Interestingly, the occupation spaces changed over time. Initially, it was a space for political engagement and discussion. Then a decision was made. The two occupations would become emergency housing for evictees. Reclaim the city would provide housing to people in the inner city. They would show their government what they should be doing. Suddenly, the activists had to learn a whole lot of new skills. Emergency housing, they discovered, doesn't just run itself. The number of people staying grew to hundreds. They developed regular meetings to plan how they would keep the place clean, safe, and create a system for providing accommodation for people in need. Shanika Abdullah, from Woodstock, up on the eastern side of inner city Cape Town, was one of these people.
5: Um, I was evicted last year in April on the 7th. Um, I was staying in Pelican Park as a resident. I was renting an apartment there, one bedroom. Staying there with my husband and my two kids just gave birth at the time came from hospital, and then I um, uh, got the letter saying that I must be out.
0: Woodstock was one of those communities that had been diverse even during apartheid. But it was gentrifying fast. And with that had come a wave of evictions as landlords kicked out low-paying renters to make space for richer and often whiter tenants. The evictions were brutal.
5: My neighbours phoned me to say, Nick, you have to come immediately. All your stuff is outside on the road in front of the door, and there's a new lock on the door.
0: She raced home, only to find that much of her stuff had been stolen before she got there. For a day or two, she sought help from friends and family, but it didn't last. At the time, I was very also because it was raining,
5: and um, I took my little baby and my 11-year-old daughter, and I said to my husband, we don't have a choice now to sleep in the car. And it was nine o'clock the evening. He just said to me, Shanika, I'm just going to park the car wherever on whichever corner because I'm tired of driving around looking for a place of which we can't find.
0: So we need to sleep in the vehicle. We slept in the vehicle. Our bodies was very sore. During the day, Shanika and her husband, Gassant tried to find somewhere to stay. For two more nights, they slept in their car. Then, on the third morning, Shanika stumbled onto some luck. I went through my
5: phone, laying in the car there, and I just saw this uh, ad on Facebook, Reclaim the City. And I went through it, and I said to him, I was so excited, I said to him, look here, this is Reclaim the City, it's the first time I hear of them, and they say they can, they're accommodating people that is homeless. And I said to him, Hassan, let's go and have a try and see what this Reclaim the City is all about. We drove off, we came to uh, Woodstock, and then I saw all these people gathering outside and my daughter was asking, Mommy, what is this all about? And I said, we are here to find out what it's all about.
0: Shanika went into the meeting, signed up, and heard that Reclaim the City not only was fighting for affordable housing, but had created some emergency housing for people like her. She immediately started talking to the organisers. He's also
5: one of the leaders, called Tata Ketani. And he spoke to me, he said to me, uh, Shanika... I feel so sorry for you for what you're going through because I explained to him my situation. He said to me, here's a list, put your name on the list. This is for, for accommodation. We do have rooms available, but we need to discuss under our leadership in the house.
0: Shanika and her family left. They had to wait. Then, while at a friend's house for lunch the next day... I sat by the table. My phone rang.
5: And I heard this voice sounded like the guy I was speaking. to the day before Shane and he was like "Mm, is this Shanika Abdullah speaking and I was like yes it's me and he said to me ma'am this is a guy you spoke to yesterday and I started crying then I knew and then he said to me ma'am I've got good news for you and he said to me "Um, we decided that uh, we are going to accommodate you and he said to me you can come through your room is available and I was like I can't believe this I came back to Woodstock and there this two guys was waiting for me, Tatakatani and Shane, and they took me to the room and they opened the door and I was like I couldn't believe it. The biggest room ever, I didn't even bargain for that. I uh, still up to today. I can't believe that from where I came from. Sleeping in the car. Yeah, a big room is awaiting for me. And I was like, uh, God really came through for me at the time.
0: It was the power of actually being able to solve people's housing problems while also campaigning for affordable housing that made Reclaim the City different. Evictions have been a real, live, escalating crisis. There are waves of new apartments being built with hundreds of residents being evicted at a time. On top of this, the city of Cape Town's solution to evictions had an apartheid feel to it. They'd built a relocation camp called Vulvrafir, 35 kilometres out of town. So I'm standing in the middle of Vulvrafir and it's like being on a farm, except it's a camp of about at least a 1,000 people, everyone living in tin sheds, um, with washing hanging out and kids running around and dirt on the roads because um, they're, they're not tarred and electrical wires running to the homes. But there's no school and there's, there's no infrastructure at all and we're an hour and a half's drive out of Cape Town's downtown. Vulvafis scares people. People like Fagmita Ling from Woodstock, who faces eviction and recently visited the camp.
4: Oh my goodness, when I went there... You know, Amanda, I would not, if I've been the system, I, uh, I would have sleepless nights thinking that I have to send people to go stay in a drought. It's like a desert. It's, you know, this is um, very um, um, close to my heart. When I speak about affair, I get very emotional because uh, of what it stands and, and having people live in circumstances like that. In Cape Town, it
0: turns out, the relocation of poor people didn't end with the Group Areas Act. Thanks to Reclaim the City, there were now two anchors for a people-powered inner city housing movement. The two occupations, renamed as Sissy Ghoul House in Woodstock and the Armoured Kathrada House in Seapoint, were places where people could rebuild their lives. They are special places. When I visited Sissy Ghoul House in Woodstock, I got some of the children to give me a tour. Okay, so we're in the occupation and I've got a bunch of kids who want to say hello.
3: Hello, Wally. Hello. How are you today?
0: Like what I see is I can see that it used to be a hospital, right? Because it sort of looks like a hospital. It's got bumper bars along the side to make sure that the beds don't fall into the wall.
5: And have lights What needs yeah. to be fixed there.
0: Yeah, but they're fluorescent lights. They're still on, luckily. Yeah. I and mean, Let's walk down. And then, at, and then the rooms. Instead of the, the rooms being open. Instead of the rooms being open, they're all they're locked because that's where people live. And, uh, the kitchen. and so, tell me about the kitchen.
3: Uh, there's
0: water,
5: there's uh, oven, there's gas. Yeah. And there's like cupboards and plants. Yep.
0: And it looks like a kitchen straight out of the 1970s. There's white tiles with lime green tinge and old cupboards with, filled with people's materials and a microwave, everything you'd need, right? And every so often you see a place where someone's got a shop yes. and they're selling stuff in case you need extra toilet paper or milk or crackers. This is, uh, this is toilet. Oh my gosh, here's the old operating theatre. Yep. And what's this room used for now? So this is, this is, this is the washing room. Another one. Oh, another washing mas- room with a washing machine. I knew what this is. This uh, is... No. I don't know what is that. That's the lights from the operating theatre. Oh, and there's one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, now it's used for washing. That's much more helpful.
5: <laughs> I think saving people's lives Sorry. is
0: an Well, this is, the hospital used to save people's lives. And now it saves people's lives in a different way. But the occupations are also deeply political spaces. They're places to organise.
3: The occupations provided practically a place to meet, just literally to meet. And it was easier to meet there because people were living there, or at least enough people were living there to form a, a, the heart of, of a, at least a collective to make decisions. There was something tangible here, whereas before it was come to a meeting and there's a promise of a distant something. Now join this movement and well if you get evicted then there's there's maybe a space for you maybe and it, it it it's just given gravitas it's given place it's given um meaning and and shelter i think to people in the movements you know so i think it's fundamentally transformed i think the occupations with it has been the thing that that built it
0: most nights of the week, the Occupations host political meetings. They have chapter meetings, where local actions and strategy are discussed, and house meetings, where they plan out how they will manage their increasingly large emergency housing centre. But managing a valuable service is not without its challenges.
1: It opened a gap for opportunists um, to, to, to actually infiltrate our, our movement and to try um, to disrupt
0: Um, the workings of, of the movement. Political movements and political parties have tried to take control of the space. Others have sought to exploit divisions and moments of violence that have occurred. On top of that, police and security guards have violently attacked residents and the province has threatened to evict people. Despite these attacks, Reclaim the City has focused its work on the city's housing crisis and has achieved some small wins along the way. But by early 2017, evictions were getting out of hand and the traditional approach of trying to provide one-to-one expert legal support to those affected was not working. Indeed, it was a bit of a crisis. No amount of lawyers could support the number of people needing help. People were left going to court on their own without representation and often being evicted illegally. Reclaim the City didn't have a practical solution to help. They needed some new ideas. And then... Just at that moment, in walks Adria Rodriguez from Barcelona on Camus in March 2017. Rodriguez invited Reclaim the City to a conference in Barcelona, hosted by a network called Fearless Cities, a loose coalition of cities from around the world that think citizens are more important than capital. The Fearless Cities conference they attended was fun, but the strategy-changing encounter happened after the conference, when they met with La La Paz. the platform for people affected by mortgages. Founded in Barcelona, it was the movement that grew out of the global financial crisis and challenged over half a million evictions in Spain. They had been working on the issue of evictions longer than Reclaim the City, and they had some interesting strategies to share. Their breakthrough idea? The Advice Assembly. These happened every Monday. The idea was simple. An open meeting between 20 and 50 people where those threatened with eviction could get up and tell their story and ask for help. Then, those who had experienced eviction could get up and give advice. It threw the lawyer-as-expert model out the window and put people in charge of their own challenges. It captivated the team from Reclaim the City.
1: When we went to Spain, Barcelona, we actually, (laughs) um, when we visited the advice assembly... It, it made sense to say, this is exactly what we wanted, but we didn't know that it, 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 it works in this kind of a way. And we actually wanted to say, we had a session with one of the Advice Assembly leaders, the LAPA leaders, to ask her questions, just literally for more than two hours, because uh, for the first time we have found what we wanted, you know, and we're trying to extract knowledge as much as we can. Um, and that was like the second day before we left Spain to come back to South Africa.
0: So the organisers returned with a new idea in hand. The idea of advice assemblies resonated deeply with others back in Cape Town, in part because of the anti-apartheid movement's own history with advice officers. The occupation sites became the testing ground for this new idea, first in Woodstock, then in Seapoint. It wasn't easy. It was a challenge to build a space where leaders had the experience to help and coach each other, And Nfukawazi staff sometimes found it hard to step out of the role of expert researcher or expert lawyer and let the expertise that lay in the room teach those experiencing eviction. But they persisted. They evaluated and changed. People who were facing eviction became core Reclaim the City leaders as a consequence of going through this process. People like Lumumba Chia, who was about to be evicted from his home in Woodstock and was desperately seeking help.
6: So when I went there, they told me about the, the AA, that's Advice Assembly in, in Woodstock, and given the fact that I'm staying in Woodstock, I knew the place, so, and then, and then uh, it's every Tuesday, and I came and I brought my papers, and I and then there were comrades here who well, there was time for questioning and answering, then I, I took my, they gave me the floor and I expressed my mind and said, this is what is happening, and then I, I had advice. From, from comrades on the ground, and there were some uh, some legal uh, experts on, uh, on the floor that day, so I had some advice.
0: It took over six months, but Lumumba stopped his eviction, and in that time, he became a leader in the local housing movement.
6: That was how I came to be uh, very active with... Um, uh, um, with the Advice Assembly, and then subsequently we with, uh, with, with reclaim the city with, with the, what they have been doing, and it has been amazing. And, and I've been part, uh, been part and parcel of it.
0: Desegregating a city is almost absurdly ambitious. But in Cape Town, someone has to do it. For years, Reclaim the City has been battling for inner-city housing. And in this fight, up until recently, not much has been gained.
3: One other thing to say is that It would be unfair to say that Reclaim the City came on the scene, made these demands, and then the city turned. It's not the way it's kind of worked. You know, at the provincial level, we haven't shifted anything. We're in court. They're being absolutely obstinate. She gave us these, you know, there has been no shift whatsoever.
0: The difficulty of the fight helps explain the strategy's audacity. They needed to create emergency housing and spaces for collective eviction advice because it felt like no one was going to do it for them. That is, until there was a ray of light. On the 5th of September 2018, the city government rezoned a massive Seapoint health precinct capable of fitting up to 1,000 affordable homes as the first step to building social housing in the inner city. It's just the first step. Every step will need to be monitored and negotiated, but it is a big step. The first affordable housing in inner-city Cape Town since democracy in 1994. Yet it has to be built right, and that will take time. But who better to hold the government to account than a poor people's movement that has taken up residency in the inner city and prides its role as reclaiming the city? Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes and catch up on Series 1. Changemakers is produced by me. Yep, I'm super busy. Written by Charles Firth, Amanda Tattersall and Amy Farrell. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisations are Sydney University Policy Lab, who we could not do this without, as well as Uniting, The Sunrise Project, Australians for Marriage Equality and the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org
4: for transcripts and updates on all of our stories.